Welcome into the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my co-host, partner in crime, co-conspirator, the doctor, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hi, everyone. Thank you for watching and listening. Just want to remind everyone, please subscribe to us on YouTube, our video channel, and please subscribe to our audio channel. We're on Spotify, Google, I, uh, Apple Podcasts, um, and uh, please spread the word, and we appreciate your kind comments. A lot of uh, really uh, supportive words online. I would say probably 90% of the comments are are very supportive and generous. Uh, the other 10%, not so much. And it goes to the territory. Well, I'll, t- right. I'll take it. Right. But the majority are, are very supportive. So we appreciate that. But uh, yeah, please like, share, subscribe. Again, spread the word. Uh, today, we're going to talk about some uh, newsy sports meets mafia um icons in in the world of athletics meet icons in the world of organized crime uh some stuff that's been in the news lately regarding phil mickelson and uh a new book that's come out by a former partner of his a guy named billy walters who if uh you believe the hype is the the biggest the single biggest individual gambler in America. Um, and uh, Billy Walters and Phil Mickelson were partners in a betting operation where they kind of shared resources and pooled money to put some real big, big, big time money bets on on uh, various sports in the late 2000s, early 2000s and 2010s. And then they had a big falling out. Billy Walters ended up going to jail for insider trading. Uh, believed that Phil Mickelson could have helped him out and, and got him out of the, the the jam with the feds. The feds were jamming Mickelson as well. Um, and from that, a lot of backstory on Mickelson's gambling addiction uh, has filtered out into the public. Um, and Walters in this book, the big headline grabbing number that he threw out was that Mickelson in like a six or seven year period gambled a billion dollars. He alleged that Mickelson gambled on the Ryder Cup, which would be a pretty major violation, um, you know, Pete Rose-esque. Uh, and so that's all kind of what's coming out in the last week or two. Mickelson has denied betting on the Ryder Cup that he was involved in and admits that he had a really bad gambling addiction. Um, what we're going to do here at the OG pod is we're going to deep dive Phil Mickelson's run in with the Detroit Mafia back in the early 2000s. And all that came out in court records during federal racketeering trial of alleged Detroit Mafia boss, Jackie Jacqueline. In 2007, it was early in my uh, crime reporting career, and I was there for the verdict. Uh, He was quitted, but in the court testimony, it came out that uh, Bill Nicholson was owed a half a million dollars in gambling winnings from the Jackaloni crew and that the Jackaloni crew 
told him to kick bricks and they stiffed him for the money. Then they went after a guy that was kind of partnered up with Nicholson in the same way that Billy Walters was uh, in the, in the late two thousands, a guy from Detroit, Don DeSerrano, Danny Don. And there's a lot to unpack. Jimmy, any initial thoughts before we uh, jump in? Yeah, there's a, a lot. So when we talk about Phil, I think some people are surprised that in this day and age, professional athletes can get in trouble with sports gambling. And uh, we had, um, you know, Dan on before to talk about his book, Interference. That was an audio only episode. People can find that. We haven't had him on video yet. We talked about a lot of NFL guys getting in trouble with sports betting, but that was more like 60s, 70s, 80s. And then Michael Francis has been on our show talking about it with college athletes. But today, I think some people might be surprised to find out that professional athletes can get into trouble gambling because I think a lot of it is, well, these guys make so much money. How can you possibly uh, not have enough money to cover your bets and become compromised? Do you want to speak to that just before we get into like the, the actual organized crime element of yeah, it? Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 been a lot of athletes and, and you know you can trace it directly to the goat michael jordan right michael jordan had to testify at a federal racketeering drug trial because he was running around with two of north carolina's most infamous drug and gambling kingpins and it looked to a lot of people that he could have been compromised at the very least uh he had to account for what was going on and checks that he was writing them um, and just like with Mickelson, we're not talking small numbers. We're talking million dollar checks. Yeah. Um, and you know, to put it in context, legal gambling in this country outside of Las Vegas and Atlantic City, and you know, reservations and uh, Indian reservations and uh, uh, riverboats and whatnot. Other than that, we've only been legal here for what a couple of years. So yeah. you got to think yeah. up until that point, any big time bets that were being put down, whether or not you were putting it down with the mob or you knew you were putting it down with the mob, the guy behind the guy behind the guy was the mob. Yeah, and I also think it's it, it's about how much money these guys have access to. So it, it, I know some some guys that I'm friends with from from the old school, from the old days who are some degenerate gamblers, <laughs> if they had, if they had access to tens of millions of dollars, they'd be, they'd be, they'd be betting that, you know what I mean? Like they wouldn't be. <laughs> so it, it's, it's maybe difficult to imagine if you're just a regular working guy, class guy, like how, how could you get in that much trouble? But um, if, if you have the bug, the gambling bug, and you have access to resources, it, it, it's, um, the possibilities are endless in terms of how, how much trouble you can get into. Is that, you know, I mean, we hear about athletes all the time, not with gambling, just they make bad investments. They give money to their entourage. And for th those of us who are working people, it's like, God, how can you, you have access to tens of millions of dollars. How can you possibly go broke? It, it depends on the person, right? Well, and, and, and to, you know, pull back even further, and this is just pure speculation, but Bill Mickelson less than uh, a year ago or maybe less than 18 months ago, he bailed on the PGA. He took $150 million up front to go, you know, be on the live tour. 
And especially after this news came out in the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of people that think that was a, that was purely to get his head above water moves. Yeah. And he needed that 150 mil and he needed it quick uh, because of um, gambling debts and whatnot, or, or maybe even not gambling debts, but you know, financial wreckage in his life due to either current gambling debts or past gambling debts. Um, and when you're talking a billion dollars in six years, seven years, this is a guy that admittedly has been betting since he was 10, 11 years old. I can't yeah. imagine the number for, for the last, he's, you know, in his early fifties now, I can't imagine the number for, for a 40 year gambling career. If there's a six year window when he's betting the bill. Yeah. So let, let's, let's like try to follow the thread here. So then how can, how does someone who's betting that kind of money eventually find their way to organized crime figures? Because that's where it kind of interests us, because just some average athlete who's a degenerate gambler, you know, but what, why it interests us is because eventually some of these guys who get in trouble find their way, you know, into, um, you know, well, end up gonna, butting heads with organized crime figures. And if we're going to talk about the Detroit group, this is a part of a long line of nexus points between the Detroit Mafia's Jackaloni crew and various professional athletes uh, in the state of Michigan. And we're talking about the, back to the 1950s, um, back when, when Tony Jackaloni and Billy Jackaloni, uh, Jackie, Jackie's uncle and father, respectively, uh, we're, we're first emerging uh, in the local underworld as, you know, the faces of the Detroit Mafia. And Bobby Lane, the Detroit Lions' greatest quarterback of all time, all due respect to Matt Stafford, uh, he was caught running around with, with the Corrados and the Jackalones, and the, the NFL told Detroit they had to, they had to trade him, and they <laughs> did. And Bobby Lane, when he was leaving Detroit, you know, cursed the franchise. We haven't, and that was back in the late 50s. Um, so, you know, then it went to the 60s. Alex Karras, uh, who people our age probably know him more as George Papadopoulos on the sitcom Webster. Um, and, uh, you know, he was suspended from the NFL for a year in the early 60s for running around the Jackalones and, 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 owning parts of restaurants and bars. The Jackalones had active sports books operating out of Denny McLean, uh, last 30 game winner in, in MLB missed a, a pretty significant stretch of the 1967 pennant race because of an alleged altercation with Billy Jackaloni, Jackie's dad, where McLean wasn't paying his debts thought because he was, you know, this all-star pitcher, he didn't have to pay what he was owed and ran into um, Billy Jackaloni on a, on a yacht, I think. And yeah. allegedly, and, and Billy Jackaloni broke his toe. Yeah. Uh, said I, and Denny McClain was kind of a huskier guy. So was, was Billy. Dude. Yeah. They were and both Billy big said, dudes. I don't know. Denny McClain was from Chicago. He said, I don't know how they do things in Chicago, but in Detroit, 
we pay our debts, fat boy. That's what he allegedly said. Then. Yeah, yeah, because because Vito or Billy, he he was he was bigger dude, but he was athletic, right? Yeah. And and Denny was 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 he was athletic because he, he was an MLB, but he was he was a little bit chubbier uh, yeah. for he was a you know bigger dude. So yeah, apparently he said fat boy. I don't know. They do things in Chicago. And then with <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say add one more thing about the Bobby Lane because this is another great story. They were they were palling around to the extent that they had a party bus. Remember yeah. the party bus that I think Vito used to drive it. Didn't it was Billy Vito Jack used to and drive Tricky it. Tom, and, and Tricky <laughs> Thomas, who was his driver. Yeah, they would have these. Well, I think we talked about it on past episodes. on, on these, audio, not on video, but on, yeah. on some of our audio episodes. They'd have yeah. these like for what the, for the time period these luxury buses that were outfitted with stripper poles <laughs> and blackjack tables and poker tables. Yeah, and they would go. They would they would follow the lions, uh, and sometimes the tigers. I think on road trips around the Midwest, and then a lot of the athletes, instead of going back to Detroit with their team, they'd jump on the Jackaloni party bus. You know, Bobby Lane was that was that was right. the he was the biggest the the guy that was always with them, and so that's yeah. one of the reasons why the NFL wanted him out of here. Lots of allegations of point shaving with Bobby Lane. Uh, a lot of his own teammates uh, talked about how he was very aware of point spreads. Uh, not that he ever threw games, but manipulating point spreads. Um, and then that brings us to Jackie Giacalone, who's the, the kind of the mafia prince who became the mafia king, if you believe the FBI. And his personal run-ins with professional athletes, at least what we know from court records are from the eighties where he was running all of the gambling for his dad and uncle uh, had just kind of gotten his button had become made was either a captain or about to become a captain. And the, the Detroit mafia would run backdoor casino nights, uh, these kind of floating, high stakes craps games um, would be at different establishments or residences. And as a way to draw these high rollers, a lot of times they would, if they could, they would host these casino nights in at mansions of professional athletes. So the two that, that uh, made it into, into uh, federal documentation was Tommy, the Hitman Hearns, the, a professional boxing champion, and then Isaiah Thomas, uh, the, the the Hall of Fame Detroit Pistons point guard, who never got charged with anything, but had to go in front of federal grand juries, had uh, his his bank records subpoenaed. There were a lot of informants telling the Detroit FBI that Isaiah was manipulating point spreads for Jackie Jackalone and Alan Hill, Jackie Jackalone's. Best friend, right hand, the general, biggest bookie in in the state of Michigan for forty years, um, and that brings us. That was uh, in in the late eighties, early nineties. Let, let me just let me just jump in one more. I, sorry to, I know that's a better segue, but we also forgot to mention um, Sam Finazzo and Jimmy Quasarano's connections to professional boxing, boxing yeah. back in the day. So, so Tommy Hearns was doing the same kind of thing that Isaiah was doing, hosting these uh, hosting these gambling nights. 
how we know about Tommy's is because Tommy's brother killed his girlfriend or something at one of these events. And there was a bunch of litigation and he had to kind of admit to what was going on. And there was an automatic weapon there. And they're like, why was there an automatic weapon there? And he's like, well, we had to have security. Well, what did you have to have security for? <laughs> um, so yeah, the Detroit mafia controlled all of professional boxing in Detroit uh, from, you know, prohibition through the eighties and, you know, starting probably from the thirties, forties into the, 80s and 90s, it was controlled by uh, little Sammy Finazzo and Jimmy the Goon Quasarano. Uh, Motor City Boxing Gym was Sammy Finazzo's headquarters. And, you know, every major boxer in Detroit history, Hearns wasn't controlled by the mafia. I don't want to say right. that. But a lot of the, the, the guys that were coming up including Joe Lewis uh, and, and those people in that era uh, had people behind them that were connected to the Detroit organized crime group. By the time you have Tommy Hearns, he was surrounded by a lot of the black gangsters, but not necessarily the Italians, though he was interacting with the Italians in these gambling settings. Yeah. We've had uh, people can check out our video episode with Daryl Chambers, uh, the legendary rest in peace. Um, pro boxer and uh, dynamite chambers right uh drug kingpin of detroit he was a pro boxer and we asked him about the italians and and you can watch in the video he talked about how the the italians would be at the um they always had front row seats and um you know he said it was kind of a it was a big deal there'd be a buzz when like the (laughs) finazzo and the the italian guys would would uh, come into the scene but tommy hearns you see isaiah we're getting a little off subject but i'll just spend a minute on this no it's okay it's good isaiah he wasn't really running around town socializing with mob guys. Um, he was letting them into his house uh, to hold these events and gambling with them, I believe. But uh, I, I don't think Isaiah was like going to you know, dinner with them or going out to clubs with them. Tommy Hearns, on the other hand, was surrounded by, on a day-to-day basis, some of Detroit's biggest African-American crime lords. Uh, So there was a kind of a difference there. Although Isaiah seemed to get in a lot more trouble with the feds than than Hearns ever did, even though they they tried to to, uh, nail Hearns and never could. They never nailed Isaiah either, but Isaiah had to go in front of a federal grand jury and uh, explain why he was cashing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month through a grocery store avoiding a bank and using a grocery store that was owned by his neighbor and close friend, Emmett Denna, who was a, a convicted mob associate. Yeah. Is he, he's still alive, isn't he? He's still around and still owns a lot of grocery stores. Yeah. That's what I thought. Uh, and uh, he, um, he ended up uh, getting indicted. Uh, Isaiah never did. Um, but the, the story broke when the Pistons were repeating in 1990, when they they won back to back NBA championships, and some of the glow of that championship was, if you were paying attention, I mean, I wasn't as a 12 or 13 year old, but if you look at the news headlines from that era, uh, a lot of talk was that this that Channel Two in Detroit, which was um, 
CBS at that at that point um, broke all of this. Isaiah being called in front of federal grand juries, being allegedly tied to Jackie Jackaloni and Alan Hill, right as the Pistons were winning a championship. It, it was coordinated. It looked coordinated, then it was coordinated. Isaiah ended up getting into a fist fight with one of the reporters when he was coming off the plane uh, with the trophy in hand from, from Portland. Yeah, uh, I, I I mean, I remember those teams, and I was a big fan of those bad boys teams. But I, I as a kid, yeah, I don't I don't ever remember like that in the news at all. But um, but Isaiah um, adamantly denies that he was involved in anything related to point spread manipulation. Yeah, he, he actually he he has he he gets takes it really as uh, you know takes it personally. Yeah, he, gets, he gets pretty irritated. Scott <laughs> Bernstein, right? When block, people bring that up, but he he also block, he I mean me from social media. We've had um, the FBI agents on our show, and we've also talked to them off the record, but um, we, they've been on record on the show, that uh, Mark Aguirre went to them and was worried that uh, he actually tipped off the FBI, because Mark Aguirre and Isaiah were close, and Your Aguirre, t- and- yeah, he, he tipped off, I mean, Aguirre, that's why Aguirre, they traded for him, the, Isaiah the, the pushed day. for that, I mean, we need it, it was the right, it was the right trade, yeah. but but Isaiah helped facilitate that, that trade, they were so close. He went and met. With Fiat Mark Aguirre, yeah. while he was driving from his home to the Palace of Auburn Hills to play in a Eastern Conference final game in is either 89 or 90, I think it was 89, um, stopped to meet the FBI and, and tell them how worried he was about Isaiah and the people that Isaiah was in debt to or could have been in debt to or might have been in debt to. And you got to remember back then, unlike now, the salaries were much, much yeah. smaller. Right. So if you're Isaiah Thomas, you're making a million a year. And I'm not again, let's take Isaiah Thomas' name out of it. You're whoever sports athlete making a mill a year, you owe somebody a quarter million dollars, half a million dollars. That's a huge part of your state. You know, it's all relative, yeah. Personal wealth. Yeah, and, and I think my sense is to be fair, I don't my sense is that from talking to these guys that Mark Aguirre was not worried that Isaiah was compromised in terms of his performance, but he was worried about his safety. That was, that was his concern. Yeah. He was worried that the Detroit mafia was going to hurt him. Right. Yes. It was going to hurt Isaiah. Right. Right. Um, And that was at a point in time where not just in Detroit, but around the country where the mafia still kill people. They don't really do that as much anymore. So I don't think Phil Mickelson, as we segue, uh, well, he was never in debt to them. I get it. So let's just let's go. Yeah, so okay. yeah. let's push it forward. So um, the Isaiah Thomas and the and, and let me also just say before I push it forward, it wasn't just Isaiah Thomas that was implicated uh, in that 91 Rico case that hit the Jackaloni crew. Uh, it was James Buddha Edwards um, and some other Pistons uh, that were were tied into that Ed, uh, Edwards had some issues back when he was in Phoenix before he got to the Pistons uh, with, with some drugs and gambling allegations. Was Spider-Man so, part of that too? Or who, who I don't remember. Uh, Sally. It's interesting. Cause Sally, when he went on, when, when John Sally went on uh, DJ Vlad, Vlad asked him about it and he, you know, he was quick to dismiss it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, from sources that I've talked to who were firsthand sources, uh, Sally was at a lot of those. John Sally was at a lot of those gambling nights. Not, 
don't think he's ever been implicated in point shaving. I want to be very clear with yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, James Edwards was, even though he was never charged or cleared. Um, and uh, but he he knew a lot more than he was willing to say on on, on Vlad. Yeah, and also um, I I know we're all over the place, but this just popped in my head, and um, it's just a it's just a side note because it's it's not germane to our story about the Jackalones, but. The Detroit Red Wings in the 1990s had a lot of Russian players that were compromised. Well, I shouldn't say compromised. They were being extorted by the Russian mafia, like like the the mafia back in Russia, not like not like the Russian mafia in in Brooklyn, but the the Russian mafia in Russia. So I don't know. Just here in Detroit, you have all these kind of points of intersection, as you point out, where professional athletes get in trouble with with gangsters, as you pointed out, not just Italian gangsters, black gangsters, Russian uh, Russian gangsters kind of a history so uh bad boys are a thing of the past and uh, in the early 2000s you had the going to work pistons different group uh that won a championship that's the era that we're going to be in even though none of the pistons were involved in this uh but phil mickelson um at that point was you know at the at, at the, the apex um him and tiger woods were you know number one and number two in the world, in terms of notoriety, in terms of popularity, in terms of money. And Mickelson, again, isn't shy about the fact that he had a gambling addiction. He somehow, I believe, in Las Vegas, in the early 2000s, he meets a very colorful, intriguing character named Dandy Don Serrano, And I, I'll Someone kind of explained uh, Dandy Don to me like this, so I don't want to take credit for it. He was explained to me as, think if Ace Rothstein from Casino was molded with Hugh Hefner of, of the Playboy Empire, and then they added a little Tony Stark from Iron Man. Yeah, and you a fun get, guy to hang out with. Yeah, you get Dandy Don <laughs> D. Serrano. You have this uh, notorious playboy, gambler, trust fund, uh, multimillionaire. His family uh, had a uh, an auto part manufacturing empire, coal heading, and uh, never really had to work, but liked to live large. Dress in the finest clothes, drive the finest cars, date the prettiest women, and and gamble huge. Uh, rumors is that he he that in in one of the big Detroit uh, mob busts of yesteryear, uh, they confiscated a million dollar check that he had written for a Super Bowl uh, a, a Super Bowl bet loss, and. <laughs> like the guy could cut a check for <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's the kind course. of guy. And yeah. in 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 the nineties, he was the the like Billy Walters was the number one gambler in America, uh, or is now or was over the last twenty years. Don D. Serrano in Detroit in the nineties and early two thousands was the biggest gambler in Detroit. Uh, most action, biggest bets volume and uh you know he lived and breathed it so he meets bill mickelson and mickelson starts 
using Don Serrano to broker bets to the Jackaloni crew, uh, Alan Hilf, the, the Jewish mafia associate, uh, Jackie Jackaloni's best friend, right hand man. Uh, and Hilf is taking Mickelson's action via D Serrano. Um, Don Serrano starts to run into some cash flow issues, uh, liqui liquidity, uh, ability to get his hands on the large sums that he was losing. Wait, wait a minute. Let me pause for a second because that's yeah. a really good point. Just because a guy has astronomical amounts of money, as you point out, the liquidity, I mean, that's, a, that's an important point. That doesn't always mean you can go to the ATM and, and take out, you know, $10 million or whatever. Yeah. Even if you technically have that in, in your portfolio, it doesn't mean you have it on hand, right? Right. And, and DeSerrano starts to get a little desperate and starts, according to court files and informants, uh, starts to fix backdoor gambling nights that the Detroit Mafia is hosting. Um, and scamming players, which I don't think that that's not what upset the Jackaloni crew. I what upset the Jackaloni crew is he wasn't sharing a piece of the proceeds with them. Uh, but he was from what I people I've spoken to that he started to do that because he needed to find ways to pay back debts faster. And this coincides as he's losing Bill Mickels. Bill Mickelson's on a hot streak. And this is all happening in 2002, 2003. And come like spring of 03, Mickelson is up $500,000 and wants to cash out. Uh, but De Serrano can't cash him out. Uh, he goes, De Serrano goes to health. And asks that Hilf cover it, and Hilf says, "I don't care if it's Phil Mickelson. No, no, I won't." Right. Um, and then Mickelson talked to some people uh, about who who was behind De Serrano, uh, and it kind of re reminded me a little bit of uh, when I was covering the Chicago mobs, the Family Secrets trial. There was that famous piece of. Uh, uh, FBI bug where, where Joey the Clown Lombardo is talking to uh, uh, Morris Shanker, who was a mob attorney who owned a piece of uh, a Vegas casino that the Chicago mob wanted him to sell. And he was haggling over selling the shares or how much money he was going to get or wasn't going to get. And Lombardo was there with Alan Dorfman, who was a, a Jewish, another Jewish uh, mob associate. And it's like, Shanker had just been dealing with Dorfman, hadn't been dealing with Lombardo. And Lombardo comes in to like as the closer and, and is like, hey, listen, Morris, like the you've been dealing with Alan and Alan's meek. But the guys behind Alan, the guys <laughs> yeah. behind me, they're not meek. Mm -hmm. They're anything but meek. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna kill you if you continue on this behavior pattern of of pushing back on what we're telling you to do. And he 
and I, I was in court when this was played. Uh, it says, how old are you now, Morris? And Morris says, uh, 75. He's like, well, let me tell you this. You're not going to reach your 76th birthday if you don't do what I'm telling you to do right now. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> so I, I believe there was some type of conversation like that, that, that Phil Mickelson was made aware of who these people were. And if you're Phil Mickelson, I guess, and you're, those are the kind of swings you're making, you know, those kind of wins and losses. You, you know, you, you walk, he walked away. He didn't, he didn't try to collect. Uh, he, he realized that uh, he had gotten, I don't know. I wouldn't say it was guzzle. I mean, guzzle goes the other way. You guzzle a bookmaker. You don't guzzle a customer, but uh, he got taken advantage of and he was relying on D Serrano. D Serrano wasn't a mob guy. He was mob adjacent, mob affiliated. But uh, but that brings us to an altercation that occurred in the weeks after this that D Serrano had with Jackie Jackaloni. And this was in June or July of 03. So the, the reason that D Serrano couldn't pay back Mickelson was because D Serrano had a $300,000 tab uh, to Hilf and Jackaloni that he couldn't pay. And he was dodging Jackie. And uh, Alan set up a meeting that DeSerrano didn't realize Jackie was going to be at. Uh, and it was at a uh, pretty famous restaurant in Detroit, not the, well, I should say the establishment or, or the building is famous. It's been a lot of different things. Back then it was called the Beach Grill. At one point it was Brownies. Um, popular right on the water, right on Lake St. Clair uh, in, in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, right a couple miles from Gross Point, which is where you know all the Detroit Mafia lived all those years where DeSerrano was brought up. And let's let's um, Point out that Di Serrano wasn't Italian. Uh, I believe he was. Yeah, and, yeah, it's misleading because because the name sounds Italian, yeah. but I I don't I don't think it. I think it was like uh, he was, some kind he of, was Belgian. Yeah, Dutch or Belgian, Dutch, or some, yeah, yeah. Some, something like that. Dutch. And uh, so summer of '03, Di Serrano shows up at the Beach Grill. He's sitting there. Alan's there. Another guy's there. They think that they're just you know meeting to shoot the shit. Uh, for lunch, and after about ten minutes of small talk, in walks Jackie Jackaloni, who takes a seat <laughs> across from De Serrano and starts screaming at him, yeah. according to testimony at at, uh, at trial, and starts hollering at him, "Why, why haven't you paid us the three hundred k you owe us? This is getting ridiculous. Oh, look at the car you just arrived in. Oh." Oh, look at the, the 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 Rolex on your on your wrist. Uh, you don't look like you have trouble with yeah. money. Why are you not paying us what you owe us? Um, the FBI believed that this was extortion. De Serrano went in front of a grand jury, and they indicted Jackie uh, for for on a racketeering case. A bunch of other people got. Tied into that case too, including alleged conciliary street boss Pete Toko, but Toko 
fled out, did two years. It had nothing to do with this. It was something else within that Rico where, where uh, Pete Toka was, was running a, a sports book. But uh, Jackie took it to trial. He was the only co-defendant in that 2006 Rico indictment to go to trial. And a lot of this came out in, in court testimony and in, in discovery. De Serrano was the, was the FBI star or was the U.S. attorney's star witness and kind of fell apart on the stand. He um, failed to remember some things he had said in the grand jury. And he said uh, he refused to acknowledge under oath that he felt threatened by Jackie. He, he said he felt he, he said he was in shock at what was happening, that he wasn't expecting to see Jackie Jacqueline and that Jackie Jacqueline was all of a sudden sitting across from him and being aggressive and abrasive. But he said he, he didn't feel intimidated. And that eventually created the reasonable doubt for, for Jackie Jacqueline to be acquitted. Well, I, I mean, I have to editorialize here a, a little bit and we, we take grief on both sides from, if you look at some of the comments, like some people will criticize us and say, Oh, because you're not street guys, you shouldn't be talking about these topics. These are like the mob fanboys. But then we also get grief from the law enforcement fanboys who say that we romanticize gangsters and we glorify gangsters. And and I, by the way, I just I I reject both of those characterizations. But people can think what they want. But what I'm about to editorialize, the, the people are going to accuse me of 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 romanticizing gangsters on that side. But I think that's a bullshit charge. I mean, to me. You, you, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to talk too autobiographical, but, um, um, the environment that I grew up, you, you don't, you don't welch and, uh, you, you owe 300 K like you pay your fucking debt or, or you might get in trouble. I mean, I'll, I'll just give one example and I'm talking about the street level. Someone I know, someone owed them five grand and, uh, they were ducking the person the person found them at one point, beat the kick the shit out of them. Person pressed charges. They did a few weeks in in county jail. But like, that's what I'm talking about. That and that's just for five grand. Like, you have to know what you're you're getting into. So, um, I'm not saying I wish anyone harm. So I, I don't I don't want people to take this the the, the wrong way. But I, I feel like that was pretty cheap to go after Jackie on something. Like well, look that. how they did it. And and. Let me give a five-second editorialization yeah. of my own. It's not a secret for people that keep tabs here in Detroit that if your last name is Jackaloni, even more so than if your last name was Tokor Zerilli, which were the CEOs of this, the, the Jackalonis were more of like the, the front bosses, even yeah. though they had a ton of autonomy. I'm not trying to take away right. what Billy and Tony were, but they still had guys above them. Yeah. And... If you had the last name Jackaloni, if you have the last name Jackaloni, you, you know, you're going to be a target and they're going to come at you guns blazing, you know, metaphorically. And in this case, just like, you know, this is FBI 101 or, or federal prosecutor 101. They saw Don D. Serrano as a way to get to Jackie and Allen. And Don Serrano is a lot easier to get to do what you want if you're the government than Alan and Jack. They thought yeah. that they could use 
Don to, to put Jack in prison. And that would have been Jack's third federal, Jackie's third federal conviction. It would have been a long sentence. Probably had it gone away for 10 years. It wouldn't have been two years. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I understand the, the logic. I just think, uh, I no, think no, it's, not... it's weak, you know? So I, let me just add on the final part of the story that I neglected to five minutes ago, that the meeting in, at the beach girl wasn't the end of it. There was another meeting four or five months later, again, arranged by Alan Hilf and, and a guy uh, that, that worked for Alan, uh, Vinny Forlini, I think his name was, they called him Vinny Beans. Um, and they set it up at a strip club on eight mile, which if you're, if you're not from Detroit and you just know the movie eight mile, that whole strip of eight mile going about 10 miles, uh, is strip club, just strip club after strip club after strip club. Um, and over the years, the mob has, you know, it's been kind of a, a, an easy way to extort money. And, uh, Jackie and Alan were known to spend a lot of time at strip clubs. And Alan was the one who liked the strip clubs. Um, Jackie would would sit there with a drink and, and watch, and Alan would <laughs> Alan would get lap dances. Um, so they meet at a, in the back of a strip club, and at that point is when Jackie tells allegedly Jackie tells De Serrano, or maybe this is actually in a court file. I'm not sure. But tells De Serrano, you don't just owe us 300k; you owe us 350k. We're tacking on a 50,000 penalty because we found out that you're fixing games with us and not sharing proceeds at our own games. Yeah. Uh, and at that point is when the feds, it, they're like, you know, they smell blood in the water. They know that D Serrano's worried that, you know, he could be physically harmed and they, they swoop in. Who was tipping them off though? D Serrano himself? How were they getting women? I don't know. I don't I don't know and I don't want to speculate. Yeah, okay, but, that's uh, fair. Yeah, don't, that's fine. But I, I don't know. I, I know that Don D. Serrano is someone that avoided a lot of law enforcement scrutiny over the years. Yeah. Um, he is or I should say he was. He died. Yeah, he's deceased, I think. He decided he died a year or two ago. And this is when all this Phil Mickelson stuff actually made it in to the newspapers because it was a uh, it was really unless you were there in court when that testimony was given, and the Detroit media by that point wasn't doing gavel to gavel gavel to gavel coverage. I only went to one day. It was a week long trial. I only went to the last day. I probably should have gone to the other days, but that didn't make it out into the papers until two years ago when the Detroit News was doing reporting on Jackie Jackaloni's tax issues. Uh, he owed uh, half a million dollars in back taxes um, and had been held in contempt of court, made it on the front page of the newspaper. De Serrano had recently died. Phil Mickelson is coming into town, and this was all coalescing, and I think it was late June of, of 2021. And the Paul Egan, great crime reporter for the Detroit News, just I think as he's doing research on De Serrano and Jackie Giacalone, he trips upon transcripts of of the court uh, of, of Jackie's trial where Phil Mickelson's mentioned and the debts mentioned and how he didn't get uh, reimbursed. And they put it on the front page of the paper the day that Mickelson lands 
in Detroit and Mickelson like lost his shit. Yeah. Refused yeah. said, I'll never come back to the city of Detroit. Um, yeah. was really upset at the Detroit news. Um, but, uh, none of that would have surfaced if, uh, Jack Jackaloni hadn't have gotten into tax issues, which it looks like he's resolved now. Well, and, um, I mean, I I would also say this, and I'm again, I'm just being descriptive here. I, I'm not saying I would wish anyone harm, uh, but this this individual, they're no longer with us, but they're lucky that they didn't know Tony or Billy three hundred and fifty k. Let's yeah. just put let's just put it that way. And then there was another thing at play here, and I want to be very clear uh, when I put this name out there that we're just stating facts. Um, so from, from what I was told, Don D. Serrano had to leave Detroit after he testified, um, against Jackie, even though he, his testimony ended up helping Jackie Giacalone, they were upset that the Detroit mafia was upset that he even took the stand of and course. Had been in front of a grand jury and they booted him out of town and he went to Las Vegas. That's where he died. Uh, he had spent a lot of time in Vegas over the years anyway. Yeah. But his nephew, where he was able to take refuge, uh, is Derek Stevens, who is like the new Steve Wynn of Las Vegas, uh, owns 10, 11 casinos in the downtown area, including the D, which is a Detroit-themed casino. Uh, word is that he's going to now move, now that Wynn is out of Las Vegas, Derek Stevens is, gonna move, is, is trying to move on to the Strip now. Huge name in Las Vegas. And let's be very clear, Derek Stevens has never been linked to any organized crime activity or anything shady. He is all above board. His, his, his empire is as, as impressive as anything that I think has been built in America. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's, a, he's a pretty mainstream figure. Uh, I mean, he's in he's, Vegas. He's, what he's done to downtown is, yeah. is amazing. I mean, in the early 2000s, downtown was as dead as dead could be. And he 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 created the Fremont experience. Uh, it's it's something to really you have to go really to experience and, and see it to really understand what it is. And it's a whole new slice of life in Vegas outside of the Strip, and something that's very accessible and affordable. Um, and it's it's brilliant. We had a longer discussion, shameless self promotion, with Larry Henry, by the way. Yeah, if you want to listen to our. A uh, Vegas episode we did a few weeks ago. We the three of us. I, I thought it was fun. It was a little. We digressed a little bit, but it was a fun discussion about the evolution of Vegas and how the the what what I call what I always refer to as old Vegas. That's what my yeah. family always said, and how this sort of like renaissance there. So I'm just pointing out Derek's name, and I and I know Derek, and hit the siren, Benny. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know he is a a great guy, a great businessman. And I have zero reservations about, you know, putting Scott Bernstein's sign of approval on, on, on Derek Stevens. Not that he needs it. Uh, he's a multi, he's a billionaire at this point. If he uh, wants to advertise, uh, though, yeah. we're more than happy. <laughs> and I love the Circa, which is his relatively new hotel, the, you know, the, the bringing the strip experience downtown. Uh, it's the first over 21. You, you got to be 21 to, to have a reservation there. Uh, I've been there and it's great. Uh, but if 
Derek Stevens was, I mean, who knows what, what De Serrano would have done, but being able to kind of go somewhere away from where you're not wanted anymore. And it's kind of like a, I don't know, kind of a golden parachute, I guess, where he was able to go there. He didn't really have to go underground or anything. He, he was able to get, I think he got some jobs as a greeter. Um, I'm sure he was gambling <laughs> and just kind of lived quietly there his, his last 10, to, uh, 10, 15 years. But I'm sure it helped that his nephew was this huge, uh, you know, mogul that was on the escalator to, uh, you know, to the stratosphere when when he when he got there. Well, my understanding from talking to uh, street sources in New York is that this is pretty much the the standard operating procedure now for Cosa Nostra. That if a guy welches and he owes a lot of money, is you're just cut off. You go in exile. Don't show your fucking face around here ever again. But but the days are over of, you know, the guy's going to disappear or something like that because it just brings too much heat back to your old point about, you know, they used to kill people for shit like this. And that's becoming less and less common. It brings too much heat. So wouldn't you say this is sort of a common um, or yeah, I don't not, know if it's a common, a, but this, this, this is right. Not an outlier, at least that that. OK, you, you fucked up. And so now we just don't ever want to see your face again. And that, you know, and, and you're cut. You're basically cut off. And in fact, I'd say that if we if we played the game of what if this happened 50 years before. Oh, geez. And it was Tony and Billy. My God. Unlike Alan Hilf, who didn't give two shits about Phil Mickelson. Right. If it let's just just interchange Arnold Palmer or Ben Hogan. And I'm not trying to besmirch their, right, it's just their reputation. Right. But let's just say that the Detroit mob owed those guys money. I'm pretty certain the Jackalones would take offense to the guy that they were uh, connected to welching on bets to someone of that, you know, level of prominence and hold that guy responsible. Yeah. You've been, and who knows what would have happened, whether it was a beating or you end up in the trunk of a car. Uh, But yeah, so he he was just told to get out of town and he went to Vegas and died quietly. And uh, it's just interesting to bring it all full circle here after the, uh, Billy Walter's book is coming out, or it's out. A lot of headlines the last couple of weeks. I just want to kind of let people know about Mickelson's trials and tribulations with the Detroit mob. Billy Walters admits in in the book that he was uh, run out of Vegas in the eighties by Tony Spilatro, and that uh, Spilatro wanted a piece of him, and instead of giving him a piece, he just left. And then waited for Spilatro to implode, which he did, and came back to town. Yeah, the the it's interesting these these examples of, uh, you know, gambling, the mob, professional sports, or even even collegiate sports. Um, we've had some episodes, you know, like where Michael Francis talks about it, Dan Moldea. Um, you can go back to the Black Sox scandal. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting intersections. We want to have our friend Sean Patrick Griffin on uh griffith on soon to talk about his book about the nba uh scandal with the ref so i i really like these kinds of um stories i i think they're um they're interesting and and i would say also a little bit of an editorial i think there are some mainstream we i won't mention any names 
I think there are some mainstream sports personalities who are very naive about these sorts of things <laughs> that they think to the extent that, that there are these intersections, it was 40, 50 years ago. And I think they're really naive. I would just say that. Because even if you're betting online right now, not with, you know, MGM or the FanDuel or DraftKings, but, you know, other online betting apparatus and platforms, just because they're not being advertised as, you know, <laughs> Joe Shark, the bookie, who you're, ta- who you're, who you're paying, you know, <laughs> Joe Shark and, and uh, Jimmy Bag of Donuts could be, yeah, <laughs> or probably is somewhere. Uh, tied in behind that. I mean, I know the last big Detroit gambling bus wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that big, but uh, one of Pete Toko's guys. And um, it was him uh, pushing people to an online site where they were getting, you know, kickbacks. Yeah. And sometimes celebrities, whether it's film or sports, they like to rub elbows with gangsters. I mean, if you, if you think that that's something from, you know, we talked about a few episodes ago, Philly's Black Mafia, Muhammad Ali with Major Cox, and that was the you know, 60s, 70s. If you think that that's something that's you know only happened back then, I, I would say you're naive. Now, obviously, not every celebrity, of, of course not. There's God, God knows how many celebrities. I'm just saying it gets brought to our attention on occasion that there are certain celebrities who like to, rub, even to this day, like to rub elbows with with uh with with gangland figures and that doesn't mean they're compromised uh, we don't know i'm just saying um it's more common than i think some mainstream sports personalities like to think well i enjoyed this um i hope you i hope the audience did um we'll have a couple more quick hitters for you uh coming out and then we'll be back next week with another full length episode thanks benny behind the glass jimmy anything else to say No, just thank you, everyone. Please subscribe and follow us. Uh, For Jimmy and Ben, Scott Bernstein, OG Pod out.